Thanks for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working through this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God has worked in your life, then let us know by sending us an email to mystory@timberlakechurch.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by giving online at timberlakechurch.com slash give. Enjoy the message. Hello, Timberlake. I want to welcome you from every campus in the Timberlake universe. And uh, my name is Rick. I'm really glad you're here. A friend of mine asked me this week, he said, what are you going to do this weekend? I said, you know, I, I get to be at Timberlake in Redmond. And he said, I thought one of their deals was no weird stuff. So I said, well... They're making an exception, so uh, it's great to be here. Uh, we are in a series called Superfan, which what that means is if you're a, a fan or a follower of uh, this particular community of people called Timberlake, you'll find out that the values of this community are parallel to the values of Jesus, because this is a community of people who follow Jesus. And so last week, uh, Pastor Ben talked about being committed to the uncommitted. Well, that's certainly descriptive of Jesus himself, and so if you are out, about, uh, out of town or you, know, you, you didn't happen to catch that, I highly recommend that online at Timberlake.com. It's just a great, great uh, um, reminder of, of what Timberlake is about, we as people, and uh, in our neighborhoods where we live, and uh, our places of work. So tonight, I want to take another step in that and consider another uh, value or maybe even another facet of the values that we have as a, a community of people that uh, follow Jesus. We want to talk tonight about being a, a low, having a low shame level, a low shame level. I would actually even consider it a no shame level uh, that you're right now, you're in the no shame zone, okay? And uh, certainly that's what we see in the life of Jesus. And so there's a, 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 all kinds of examples of this, but I, I, I took a look at John chapter four, which is a, in the new part of the Bible, there are four stories uh, about the life of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, those four stories uh, are similar yet different because they're written by four different authors inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they're written to four different audiences. And so Matthew is written to a, a, an audience that is more... Uh, uh, familiar with the Hebrew or the, uh, the, the Jewish approach to life. And uh, then uh, Luke is actually written to more of a, uh, a non-Jewish audience, which is something that I can relate to because I didn't grow up Jewish or in a synagogue. And, uh, and then John is kind of a, a guy that does a, what they call the synoptic. He sort, of, he sort of puts it all together and does an overview of that. And John's uh, gospel is the last of the four stories written. So he kind of has some, some backstage awareness of what's going on and a little more perspective on the life of Jesus and in chapter four, he has this very interesting uh, chapter, and I want you to, to feel free to check that out. Now, you have some notes here, and uh, one of the things about our notes is that we do give you uh, different uh, pieces of scripture, and we do highly recommend that you kind of take that and look it up in some different versions. Now, usually, Pastor Ben is kind of an NIV guy, which some of you people that are Bible people, you know that's the new international version. I went on a crazy, crazy, crazy lunatic, you know, a kind of a, a reading binge here, and I'm using the message. Okay, which is actually a paraphrase of the original text by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who's a great writer. So he kind of uh, puts it in more modern terms, but it's always good to take the text and look it up in, in several different translations, because most of us, maybe some of us don't know this, but the original uh, language of scripture was not English. 
And so whatever version you're reading that I'm reading, it's a translation, right? So it's good to check different translations because different uh, communities of translators have different slants on things. I like what Eugene says in this particular passage, but look it up uh, in the NIV so, so that you can talk to Pastor Ben about it. Uh, uh, but John chapter 4 starts out, and it, it's really the story of Jesus meeting a woman. And he meets her. Uh, at an unusual time in the day for somebody to be drawing water, but she's at a well and she's drawing water and he has a conversation with her. She's really startled about the conversation. And then his friends who were you know, at Costco in town, uh, they come back and they see him talking to this woman and they're shocked. That's actually what it says. They're just, they cannot believe it. And, uh, and so this is that very interesting chapter. And this chapter is filled with uh, a reflection of a woman who feels shame and how Jesus uh, he walked right through that, and he, he demonstrated that to be in relationship uh, with him is, was a no-shame kind of a zone to be in. Uh, and so one of the things I want to say about being at Timberlake and, or you know, following Jesus is that having low shame means it's okay to admit that we struggle. It's okay to admit that we have problems, that we doubt, that we don't have it all figured out, uh, and that we, we fail, and that we, we need help. We need forgiveness. That's what, there's no shame in, in uh, admitting that. And because when we do that, then it allows us to work through these things uh, by the, the, the gifts of uh, forgiveness, and, and, uh, and God brings us to wholeness and holiness. That's what the Bible says. So it, let's take a look at that chapter. And you have your notes so you can fill in the blanks if you're a fill-in-the-blank person, kind of key words there. And we want to take a look at what shame actually, you know, kind of characteristics of shame, why it never works, Okay. And, um, and we were actually raised, uh, um, Marvely and I, we, we were talking about our childhood and our parents used to say, shame on you. And we were thinking, oh, they were just saying, don't do that. But that's a pretty destructive phrase. And uh, I'm sure that they didn't really necessarily think it through, <laughs> but maybe you were raised like that, you know, and people were always trying to put shame on you. And uh, you can see that uh, that's really not productive because one of the things about shame is shame is built on rivalry. Shame is built on rivalry. It says at the very beginning of this chapter that um, Jesus realized the Pharisees were keeping count. Now, the Pharisees were like, uh, if you go to a Seahawks game, you'll see all these exciting football players that, you know, on each team that are competing, but there's a one person in the middle, you know, several actually group of them that have the striped shirts and they're throwing the flags. And these were sort of like the Pharisees. They, they saw themselves as the spiritual referees in life, and they're always calling penalties on people. And one of the things they did is they tried to set up a rivalry, it says here. They, they, they found out that, that Jesus, his, his uh, disciples were actually the ones doing the baptism, but they said Jesus was baptizing more people than John. John the Baptist, right? I mean, John, his, his nickname was the Baptist, right? And Jesus was baptizing more people than John, and so they tried to set up this competition and try to put shame on Jesus and on John. You know, like, hey, you know, you guys are competing now. And look at Jesus is kind of becoming more popular than you. So too bad for you. And they were, they were trying to create a rivalry. And you know, shame always lives in rivalry. When people try to pit you against something or uh, your group against another group, there's a lot of shame involved in that. Because shame always communicates that hey, you're not quite cutting it. You're not good enough. Too bad you're not in this group here. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of the reason why we live in a, a culture that is so tuned into conformity. Because, see, the thing about conformity is if we fit in, then we're like, hey, 
I'm not different. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm fitting right in here. So, you know, no shame, right? I mean, like, look at me. I'm just, I'm not the other, you know, I'm not in, I'm not in rivalry situation. And we try to fit in. So that's what we do all our lives. We try to do the thing that we think is, you know, is, um, you know, a conformist thing to do because we want to belong. And I remember this, uh, so I started thinking about what are the great, you know, the pressures of, of being accepted or being cool or fitting in. And so I started thinking throughout my life. Now, of course, my life has a lot more decades than many of your lives here today, but I started thinking about it in the 60s, the coolest thing you could get was a bicycle, and the kind of bicycle you wanted was the Stingray bicycle with the banana seat. I don't know if you, uh, you know, are tuned into this, but that was the cool bicycle. That was, that was it. If you were uh, you know, in, in the in crowd and you were acceptable you know, as a bike rider back in the 60s as a little kid, this is the bike you wanted. And so I kind of dreamed about this bike. And then one day my dad says, hey, we got you a bike. And, I, you know, and this is what I had in my mind. The Stingray with the banana seat. I just wondered what color it was, right? And, and my dad wheels out this bicycle. It's my cousin Janice's bike. It's this, it's this old beater bike that my, my, my cousin had, and she had grown out of it, so now it was my bike. And I'm just thinking, wow, that's not, that's not cool. This is not what I was hoping for. I mean, you know, and I thought, but at the same time, I was kind of excited because I had wheels, you know, so I had my own, my first bike. And I remember uh, zipping out into the street, you know, and seeing all the kids in the neighborhood. And as soon as I, as soon as I got out, you know, invisible to the kids, they started making fun of me that bike and, and one guy says to me that's a girl's bike and I was like you don't even know Janice I mean how how do you know it's a girl's bike I didn't understand what he was saying it's a girl how can you tell it's a girl's bike and he said the girl's bike doesn't have the bar the top bar I didn't know that I looked down and like it's just you know this bike that doesn't have the top bar and I'm thinking oh now everybody can tell I'm riding a girl's bike so they're all making fun of me and I felt kind of ashamed you know of having this bike and then I started thinking about it what genius bike engineer put the top bar on the boy's bike? You know what I'm saying? This is a bad idea. You guys know what I'm talking about. You hit your first curb and you think, wow, this is a bad design, right? I mean, there's, right now, there's like, are you, have you noticed that there's so many commercials you know, on television uh, for some kind of you know, various male dysfunctions, right? I blame the top bar, okay? I think that's what it gets back to. Uh, and so... I just remember starting off thinking like I don't fit in, you know, and this is, and, and that's what happens in our lives. We start to sort of build these memories of where we're the other and kind of the world is in rivalry with us and we're not cutting it. We don't fit in. And that's where shame lives. Shame, you start to become like ashamed of who you are. Now, in the 70s, I literally wore these shoes when I walked uh, in high school graduation. You know, when you do that walk, that's, you know, the gradual slow walk across the state. I, I wore these shoes. Now, these shoes, um, they, were, they were cool because they were platform shoes. And I could, I was like seven foot eight, you know, and I could date like a WNBA, you know, player if I wanted. But, but the problem with these shoes is that these were the cool shoes to wear. And then you'd just be walking around looking really cool. All of a sudden, just break your ankle. You know, I mean, it was, there was a risk involved in these. But I remember the reason I pursued these shoes, even though I will tell you to this day, the most uncomfortable shoes ever but I was wearing these things around to try to fit in because I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be acceptable, right? We do all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, you think about, uh, you know, bikes when you're little or shoes, you know, when you're a teenager, but then in the eighties, hair was a big deal. Uh, this was a prevailing cool hairdo of the day. Mullet power, right? I mean, you know, it was, everybody knows it's, you know, it's business in the front party in the back and all that. And, uh, 
it's still, today, you'll, every once in a while, you'll see a mullet somewhere, and you're supposed to photograph it and you know, send it to a mullet website. You know, and uh, this is kind of the Confederate flag of hairdos, even now. You know, so, but this was really the rage back in the day, and my parents were like, I, would, I don't know what you'd call them, like they were just conservative in the hairdo department and they just always got us to, like, to you know, look like everybody wanted to know what, like, what branch of military we were in, you know, because we, we weren't allowed to grow the giant crazy mullet and all of a sudden you're like, well, we're just not cool, we're not with it, we're not, you know, and there's a little bit of shame that, that the, our culture kind of feeds into your life. You're not quite it, too bad for you. And then, of course, when the 90s showed up, we decided that, that body art was a big deal. Uh, you know, especially tattoos and piercings and things like that. Now, this particular uh, a gentleman, uh, you know, might have overstepped the limits, you know, because, you know, good art is always knowing when to quit. Uh, and for sure, this is not the guy you want blowing up the balloons at the birthday party. You know, this is not going to work out. But, uh, but yeah, we, we started expressing ourselves. And, you know, even to this day, we have a lot of body art. But uh, there, there's an interesting nuance in that, in that, you know, we're all pursuing something that we think, hey, what do you think? You know, like uh, there's a, a friend of ours who, who got a tattoo, you know, and then, you know, he was, it, we have actually got a family saying, like, uh, it's all about the tattoo. Because when we talk to him, we say, he go, hey, I got a tattoo. Oh, great. And we'd say, wow, man, that's uh, really amazing what's been happening recently. He goes, yeah, you know, there were so many colors. What do you mean? At the tattoo place. Oh, okay, yeah, I bet there were. And anyway, uh, so recently I heard, and he goes, yeah, you know, I had to pick out. Anyway, everything the guy talked about was the tattoo. So anytime we meet somebody who's just stuck on a subject, we always say it's all about the tattoo, you know, because this is kind of part of what, what our culture was about, expressing yourself, you know, artistically, right? And, uh, and so if you kind of didn't quite get that right, or you know how it is, it's kind of a scary thing, because you could get a, you know, you get a tattoo of a hummingbird, and as you age, it becomes you know, more and more like, you know, like a, a different animal, you, you can't, can't explain, and, and so that can happen, but it's all this pursuit of conformity. I think the last uh, decade that I thought about was like at the turn of the, the new millennium, 2000, you know, everybody was wearing wristbands to identify themselves with Lance Armstrong, you know, and, and that was kind of like, hey, this guy's cool, and I'm cool too, you know, because he and I were winners, right? And that's when we learned that it's all right to identify with winners, but maybe after the investigation, you know, because <laughs> it, it was kind of, it ended up being like uncool. But whenever we do that, whenever we pursue um, acceptance and trying to fit in based on anything exterior that we own, when, it, when we kind of fall short of that, that's the, that's the gap that shame lives in. And what we're saying is that um, none of that here. That it, actually what the Bible says about Jesus when these uh, sort of shame guys said to him, hey, you know what, um, you and John are in rivalry and you're winning and he's not and all this stuff. Is what, I love what it says in the text right there. So Jesus left. He just, he left. He, uh, he walked away. And really that is, our, that is the best response we can have to somebody sending us the message that um, you're not good enough. Like you, you, don't, you don't fit in. It's to just, it's to go home to the place that we know we belong. And uh, that's really what the whole idea of a local community of followers of Christ is all about. That's the whole idea about being in a small group. It's just people who say, hey, you're stuck with us. Like, I mean, you know, we, you're welcome here. And, uh, and Jesus stepped out of that competitive kind of rivalry situation, and he just, he walked away. And then this is when uh, John says, in that context, he's talking about this context of rivalry and shame, 
that he meets this woman at the well. And that's where we learn that shame actually is not only built on rivalry, but it imprisons your identity. See, shame's got a cousin called guilt. And guilt uh, uh, is actually a, a productive thing. It, guilt means I did something wrong. And then when we do something wrong, we should be held accountable for it, and we should ask forgiveness for that. Shame says, I'm bad. Not what I did. It's not a behavior. It's me. And shame is always destructive. Shame paralyzes people. It, it isolates people because what it does is it imprisons your identity. See, this woman that Jesus meets, she said two things. I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. She said, I am ashamed of my gender and ashamed of my ethnicity. And those were two uh, areas in the, in, the, in the times of Jesus where if you were a woman or if you were you know, non-Jewish in the Jewish context, you, know, you should be ashamed of that. And Jesus, he walks right up to, to her and he says, not here. He's like, look, uh, you're not talking about anything you did. You're talking about who you are. You're a woman, and you're a Samaritan. No shame. You're not saying, like, you know, I made a, a huge mistake. I made a bad decision. I really hurt a bunch of people. No, you're just being you. And shame always tries to make you feel like there's something wrong with just being yourself. And so this gets uh, translated in this very interesting uh, setting into uh, thirst, because see, Jesus is at a well, this woman's drawing water. So he begins to talk to her about thirst. And what is her great thirst? Well, it's the same thirst you and I have. A thirst to, that we matter. That, you know, that we're not just, you know, a cog in, in, the, in the great celestial, you know, scheme of things. That we, 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 our identity, who we are, whether we're men or women, whatever our nationality is, whatever our ethnicity is, that that is something that we don't have to be ashamed of. And so Jesus, you know, he, uh, he says um, to this woman, hey, yeah, I know you're a woman. I know that you're a Samaritan. But you should ask me, and I'll tell you about uh, some water that, you know, you can get, and you'll never, ever be thirsty again. You'll never thirst for this significance. You'll never thirst to be loved if you understand what I'm talking to you about. And of course, uh, it's really interesting because um, the woman says, sir, she says, listen, you know, I can't believe you would ask a woman, a Samaritan woman for a drink, right? And, uh, and then actually, uh, in, Eugene Peterson gives us this uh, little hint. Uh, Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. That's, that's the way he, he puts it. Like, it was absolutely something that was unusual. That's why everybody was so shocked, right? That's because it was built on shame right? And Jesus walked right through it. So I don't care who you are. I don't care what your pedigree is. I don't care what your uh, graduate and undergraduate degrees say. It doesn't matter. Who you are is nothing to be ashamed of. And Jesus Christ, is he walks right through those sort of cultural barriers that we put up well, hey, you don't know me, man. I'm not really, you know, educated. Hey, you don't know me. I'm not, you know, and we're always not something. We're always not something. That's like, some of you might remember that my favorite item in the grocery store is that uh, in the dairy uh, part of the grocery store, it's called, I can't believe it's not butter. 
I just think this is a hilarious you know, product that they would market it based on what it's not. Hey, not butter. Like don't you, every single item in the grocery store except butter could be called not butter. Like the bread could be not butter either. You know I mean? It's just everything's not butter except butter. But now they have like not butter light, which I think is pretty interesting because it means it's less than what it's not, which is kind of like, you know, interstellar or something. I mean, uh, so like I think uh, this, this is so interesting that they would say like, hey, this, tell you what this product is. It's not butter. And I look at that a lot and I think we do the same things. You know, we describe people say, hey, who are you? And I'm not that smart. I'm not that interesting. I'm, you know, I'm not skinny enough. I'm not, we, we really base a lot of how we feel about ourselves based on what we're not, right? It's just kind of how, how our culture works. In fact, there's a shame researcher. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of her. Her name is Brene Brown. Have you heard of her? She has the most, uh, like, one of the most viral TED Talks in the history of, you know, TED Talks. And she talks about shame and vulnerability. That's her area. And uh, she's very interesting, and I recommend you checking out her stuff. But one of the things she says is this, Brene Brown. She says, we live in a culture with a strong sense of what you're not. Scarcity. You know, you're not. And here's what she says. We wake up in the morning and we say, I didn't get enough sleep. And then we, uh, we, we hit the pillow saying, I didn't get enough done. And we're never thin enough. We're not extraordinary enough. We're not good enough. For me, she said, the opposite of scarcity is not abundance. It's enough. The opposite of scarcity is not abundance. It's not having more than you can deal with. It's just saying enough. I am enough, right? And this is exactly what Jesus said. See, shame says you are never enough. And Jesus says, yes, you are. You're enough. You have everything it takes to have a a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and to live a meaningful life. Now, are we gonna make mistakes? Yeah, probably. Well, not probably, for sure, right? We're gonna make this, we're gonna have problems and issues. Yeah, but those things are things we can ask forgiveness for because guilt is a good thing. I shouldn't have said that. That's guilt, right? I should have said something and I didn't. That's guilt. I can take those things to God. You know, God, forgive me for the things I did that I shouldn't have done. Forgive me for the things that I didn't do that I should have done. But you don't have to forgive me for being me. Jesus said, no. I know you're a woman. I know you're a Samaritan. And hey, listen, when I get done, you're not gonna be thirsty for that anymore. You're not gonna be always trying to, you know, find, you know, uh, something that makes you feel important because shame always imprisons your identity, okay? Jesus teaches us there, and then shame is never satisfied. That's, you know, something that I'm sure even many of us could tell our own stories on that. But this woman said, hey, Sir, give me this water so that I would never get thirsty again. I don't want to have to come back to this well again. So she was taking it quite literally, like, hey, this is a drag carrying water, and if you can help me figure out how never to... And, of course, the metaphor is so powerful. Jesus, I don't... Not only is she expressing that she doesn't want to come, you know, do this heavy work, but really, in this story, she's saying, I don't want to keep trying to find somebody to love me. I keep trying to look for somebody else. Do you love me? You know, and all I ever get is shame. Shame, it just keeps compounding, right? Because shame is never satisfied. That's why I think the, uh, the idea of thirst, you know, is such a powerful idea. Just constantly, you know, it's just, you know, always a relentless kind of uh, a thing uh, that we understand. And so, um, 
So Jesus says, listen, um, you know, let me ask you a question. And then he began to, to do a little interrogation that helped her understand that this was not just about drawing water from an actual literal well in a bucket, but it was about her life. And uh, so he begins to talk to her about grace. And that's where we want to turn the page and see that, you know, grace, grace is something that Jesus helped her understand. Grace resides. It's resident. It's not something that's out there that you have to go get. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. He was talking about this water from the well, you know, this, this physical water. But anyone who drinks of the water I give will never, ever thirst. Not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within gushing fountains of endless life. So what he's saying is when you understand a relationship with God Almighty and the Holy Spirit becomes resident in your life, it's not something you got to go keep getting, you know, and replenishing. It's like, no, it's a part of your experience that this grace that God gives, this incredible reservoir of power is resident in you. It resides. And uh, he was trying to communicate to this lady that, look, this thirst you have, you know, to not be ashamed of who you are, it's never going to go away until you're in relationship with God. And then you'll be satisfied. Like, like the Holy Spirit is not just a visitor in our lives, but takes residence, that's what the Bible says, moves in and becomes a part of who we are. Okay, And so that's what's so amazing because uh, uh, it, it totally evacuates shame when we realize that God wants to take residence in our lives. That validates what Jesus was saying is that you're enough. Okay, That you don't have to be ashamed of who you are. That you are the perfect residence for the power of God to live a life uh, in obedience to who Christ is. And so... We learn here that grace resides, and then we learn that grace actually faces reality. Because in this story, you know, you, if you read this in John chapter 4, you know, you'll see this going along where, you know, it starts out with this idea of rivalry, and then he meets this woman, and then she finally says, I want what you're saying, offering. Please. And, and you know, uh, here at Timberlake, uh, Pastor Ben and, and others uh, have practiced this uh, Quite, you know, quite often where at the end of a, uh, a Sunday service, they'll have everyone close their eyes and say, hey, if you, if you would like to pray a prayer to invite Christ into your life, then it goes like this. And he, then Pastor Ben, I've heard him say this before. If you have prayed that prayer, then look up at me, right? And people look up and they'll go, yeah, okay, I see you. And it's a way to you know, kind of come out of hiding and say, yeah, that's me. I'm, I prayed the prayer. And uh, what's really interesting is that in this practice, um, uh, you know, people decide, hey, I want what you're talking about. Like, yes, please. That's what happened to this woman. Jesus said, listen, if, you know, I have something for you and you won't be thirsty anymore. You won't live in shame because of who you are. You won't be constantly looking for, for someone to care about you. And so she says, I want it. So she sort of looked up at Jesus, like people do, you know, at church services here at Timberlake. She looked up, she said, I want it. I want what you have. And then Jesus says, well, um, where's your husband? And it kind of almost seems like if you're reading this, like he's like, what happened? We were doing this whole thing about water and wells and everything, and all of a sudden it, went, it switched to your husband. But, you know, Jesus said, okay, if you want what I have, 
where's your husband? And then she says, uh, yeah, well, that's going to be a problem, you know. And he goes, yeah, not, not only do you not have a husband now, uh, in fact, the text says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, that's nicely put, I have no husband. Actually, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. So you, you spoke the truth there. So he just reads her mail. He says, look, I know about your, your story. I know your story. And then she re- replies after this, if you want to read the text, where she goes, I perceive that you're a prophet, you know, which is a very, very perceptive of her, you know, because all of a sudden, you know, like what? And, what, you know, in this particular uh, era, to have had uh, five different husbands and then, you know, right now you're in the custody of another man that's not your husband really speaks to a life of incredible pain and loss, you know, because there was, there's a reason why in this era that people would have to keep moving from family to family. There was a thing called the Leverite Law where if your husband was killed, and, you know, in some kind of a, a border skirmish, then, you know, you would have to move to his brother you know, who would then become your husband and take care of your kids. And there was all kinds of procedures for, you know, social service kinds of functions for how that society worked. And what it said was, your life has been very, very difficult. And, you know, there's been no security. And there's been, you know, a constant looking over your shoulder. These are the things you thirst for. This is what you're thirsting for, that, you know, that, you're, that you can count on something. And, uh, and so Jesus begins uh, to say, look, you can face reality, and you don't have to hide, and I still have grace for you. Like, the lady didn't have to fake, like, everything's beautiful. Jesus said, no, that's, you know, tell me your story. Where's your husband? You know, and then she just gives him a little bit of the story, like, well, I don't have a husband right now, and he goes, yeah, I know the whole story. And guess what? Jesus knows the whole story about you, too. Yeah, you look fantastic right now, but... You know, sometimes we think if, if, if Jesus really knew me, like, I'm not sure. And he's saying, yeah, listen, you know, grace deals in reality. And, you know, shame says stay hidden. Stay, you know, don't, don't let anybody know. One of the great things about small groups is after you get to become, you know, friends with folks over time, you know, you'll take a risk and you'll say, like, well, I'm struggling with this or that. And you think everybody's going to go, okay, well, let's, uh, let's quit doing this now. You know, like, and all of a sudden, you're not going to be in the group anymore. That's kind of what we all think. If people really knew me, they would just kind of start to leave me. But in grace, what we find out is that when somebody says, you know what I'm really struggling with, here's what really happens. All of us go, hey, me too, man. Like, this, this grace, this honesty draws us together. And that's what we find in, the, in this woman's life, that grace faces reality, not afraid to say what, what's really happening in your life. Jesus doesn't move away, but he moves toward her. So this great thirst she had for love and for forgiveness is the same thirst we have. And we, I mean, many of us, we could all tell stories about how we try to pursue that and that it just didn't quench the thirst. We were still thirsty. And then the last thing about grace is that it's found, obviously, it's found in relationship with Jesus, and this passage really uh, plays that out. Um, Because the lady said, well, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, You know, you seem like you're a religious guy, you're kind of a prophet, but, you know, I have my own religion, and you have your own religion, and Jesus said, you know what, the day is coming and uh, has now arrived where, you know, it's not going to be about religion, it's going to be about relationship. And And she said, yeah, I know that there's... You know, it's important to have a relationship with God. And then Jesus said, hey, right here, 
This is when he makes a statement. He says, uh, I am he. You don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to look any further. I am. I am the promise from God. I am God. I am the Messiah. This is one of the great statements in John where Jesus uh, sort of lays the cards on the table and says, you know, this is why I'm here. To build a relationship with somebody who doesn't really believe in themselves, who's got a, a painful history, who is uh, surrounded by you know, kind of a shame-based situation. And that's exactly what Timberlake's about. That's why it's one of our values, you know? I mean, uh, we are committed to the uncommitted because all of us were the uncommitted or are. And we're also interested in living in a place where there's, you know, no shame. You know, where we say, hey, you don't have to be ashamed of who you are. You are enough. And the great, our grace lives in truth. You can tell the truth, you know? Over time, we can, we can find that we won't thirst for love and significance. Who you are is embedded in who Jesus Christ is. And uh, that's what Jesus introduces to this amazing woman. See, uh, last week, I, a friend of mine just returned from Iraq, and uh, I don't know how many, how many of you have heard of Andrew White. Anybody heard of Andrew White? Andrew, is, he's called the Vicar of Baghdad. He's, he pastors the only Anglican church in all of Iraq. He has been known to travel with uh, uh, 35 bodyguards <laughs> over time, you know, but he's, his, you know, and he's in Baghdad, okay? This is, this is you know, uh, a very difficult place to be, and, and his whole ministry has been all about no shame and reconciliation. He's saying, look, look, this whole part of the world is built on, you know, shame on you for, you know, being born this ethnicity or for, for being this gender or for being, you know, this persuasion of some kind of a, a religious movement, all that. And he just keeps preaching that Jesus loves everyone, no shame. And that Jesus says that we are enough. And, uh, you know, phenomenal, really, testimony. Now, what's interesting is that uh, Andrew was actually an anesthesiologist in, uh, in England and so he was practicing medicine, and then he decided that God spoke to him and says, I want you to be a pastor. Well, he had no idea, you know, from sort of the safety of hospital work in England that he was going to end up, you know, in, in a, you know, a parish in downtown Baghdad, right, in, in the green zone. And, uh, but at the same time, you could see that a guy who puts people to sleep professionally is kind of set up, you know, to be a pastor, right? <laughs> I mean, anesthesiology and, you know, that. So, but... It was, it's a remarkable story, and uh, here's what uh, Andrew says. He actually, I, I really felt honored because he, he gave me a, a copy of his newest book, and <laughs> my friend who, who just returned last week, so I had a coffee with him, he said, hey, Andrew gave you this book, and it says in there, hey, Rick, you know, my own best wishes, you know, Andrew, whatever, and he goes, here's the crazy part. He, he wanted to make sure you knew that he signed it, he signed your name and whatever with the same pen that he signed Saddam Hussein's death certificate. And I was like, you know, kind of creepy. But, uh, but that's the book I have on my desk. And one of the things Andrew says is this, this quote. He says that people are waiting for forgiveness. This is what he's learned. When we finally step out of shame and say, look, you know, it's all right to be me. It's all right to be this gender, this ethnicity, this, you know, this all right. Those are, not, those are not things I did, right? That's just who I am. 
And Jesus walks right through that. I mean, in every case, when you see the life and ministry of Jesus, there's a huge prejudice against, you know, Samaritan folks and, and, you know, women. And actually, children were highly undervalued in the Roman government. And Jesus, he said, get the kids over here. You know, I mean, he, he took every kind of power structure and he just waded right through it because it's all shame-based. And he said, listen, shame has no place where there's grace, but forgiveness is the answer to guilt. Yeah, and so he said, and this is what Andrew is preaching to the folks in Baghdad. Hey, there's no shame in whatever you are, right? But we need forgiveness, man. We need forgiveness. Here's what he says. Forgiveness is the most important thing in life. That's what Andrew says, Andrew White. Forgiveness is the most important thing in life, and here's why. It's the only thing that can prevent the pain of the past from determining our future. That's pretty clearly spoken. And so what I like about Jesus is he says, listen, no more waiting for that. No more, hey, someday, but that we can ask for that now. And really, that's, that's what this means. That's what living in a low shame threshold is all about. So if you're a guest, uh, welcome to the tutorial about what we're about. But like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, uh, what I like about uh, you folks is that, you, you know, the, the things you care about are the things that describe what Jesus was about, right? That's what Timberlake's about, committed to the uncommitted and living with, you know, in an atmosphere that says, hey, look, no shame, all right? We can admit the things we need help with, and we can get forgiveness from God. That's what he offers us. And it's not out there someday, it's now. And once we receive that forgiveness and we understand God's plan for our lives, it becomes resident in our lives and begins to become something that we live in, okay? It's not, we're not visitors anymore. We are experiencing God's power in our lives. That's what Jesus was saying. And uh, I'd love it if I could just uh, close our time in a prayer for you. Would you bow your heads with me for a second today?